Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, for this community, for this opportunity to dive into your word. We pray, Lord, that you just give us a moment to settle, to quiet our minds and our hearts, and to identify those places where we are yearning for you, yearning for more, yearning for answers and direction and healing. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be present to us tonight in those places, that you would speak to and through us tonight as we dive into your word and as we share in fellowship with one another. Guide our time, fill it with wisdom and truth, and allow us to be attentive to how your spirit is moving and speaking to us each individually. You knew all of us would be here tonight, and you have a unique message for each one of us. Help us to be open to receive it, and we cast out and rebuke any spirit of worry, anxiety, concern, or anything calling us away from this time or unfocusing our attention so that we can be fully present to you as you are fully present to us, Lord Jesus. Bless this time as we lay it at your feet, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome once again. Great to be with you. We are in John chapter 11. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the fifth Sunday of Lent, and it is the third and final scrutiny gospel for those who are in RCIA. So if you come to the 9 a.m. Mass, all those who are entering the Catholic Church, these particular gospel passages we've been in the past few weeks have been directed toward the healing and the encounter with Jesus that they are preparing for at the Easter Vigil. And so we get to be along the ride with them on that journey, and this is the last of those longer gospels uh, that they are, we are praying for them in light of. And so this is John 11, the raising of Lazarus. So we're going to read this twice through, and this is a longer passage, verses 1 through 45. So as always, remove any image you have in your mind of this story, if you've heard it before. Act as though you have a blank canvas in front of you in your mind. Uh, pretend you've never heard it before, and allow this to unfold and be painted anew in your mind as you hear it. Pay attention to your senses. What do you notice Place yourself in the story. What do you smell, hear, taste, see, touch? All of those things as we read through uh, this passage. So we're in John 11, starting in verse 1. The raising of of Lazarus. Now a man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was ill. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Master, the one you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not to end in death, but it's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to stone you, and you want to go back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? 
If one walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He said this and then told them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I am going to awake him. So the disciples said to him, Master, if he is asleep, he will be saved. But Jesus was talking about his death, while they thought he meant ordinary sleep. So then Jesus said to them clearly, Lazarus has died. And I am glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go to die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, only about two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary secretly, saying, The teacher is here and is asking for you. As soon as she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. For Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were there with her in the house comforting her saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, presuming that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he became perturbed and deeply troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have done something so that this man would not have died? So Jesus, perturbed again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. She has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial, hand, burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. Now many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen what he had done began to believe in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
So now that you have an image of this story in your mind, hopefully we're going to read through it again. Yes, even though it is long. Uh, and I invite you this time, now that you have this image, to focus on the image, but especially be attentive to the words as they are read. You can follow along very closely in your Bible or close your eyes and just try and focus on the words as they are spoken. As you do that, see if a particular word stands out to you, sparks something in your mind, a memory, a thought, it connects to you for some particular reason, something personal. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage, but just speaks to you in some way. Hold on to those little words or phrases and begin to reflect on those, asking, God, why are you having this stand out to me? What are you trying to say to me through this particular detail? As we read through this one final time, John 11, the raising of Lazarus. Now a man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was ill. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Master, the one you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to stone you and you want to go back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If one walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He said this and then told them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I am going to awake him. So the disciples said to him, Master, if he is asleep, he will be saved. But Jesus was talking about his death while they thought that he meant ordinary sleep. So then Jesus said to them clearly, Lazarus has died. And I am glad for you that I was not there that you may believe. Let us, also, or let us go to him. So Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go to die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, only about two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary secretly, saying, The teacher is here and asking for you. As soon as she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. For Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still where Martha had met him. So when the Jews, who were with her in the house comforting her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, presuming that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, 
She fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he became perturbed and deeply troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man had done something so that this man would not have died? So Jesus, perturbed again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. Now many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen what he had done began to believe in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take about 10 minutes or so at your tables to just talk about what stood out to you, what questions you have about the reading, uh, anything else that resonates with you from this passage. And then I'll call you back together in a larger group for some Q&A. If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what stands out to you. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes. So I'd like to, as I've done these past couple weeks with these longer Gospels, um, give you just a little bit of some context, a little synopsis um, of some things that I think are noteworthy, and then we can bring it, uh, open it up to, to questions. Um, but this is not long after in the Gospels that Jesus uh, heals the man born blind, which was our reading this past week. This is just two chapters later. Um, and as I said last week, a lot of stuff in John is very spread out from story to story. He's giving you this highlight reel of things that don't appear in the other Gospels. And particularly, he's highlighting certain signs that Jesus performs, seven particular signs that Jesus performs to show that he has dominion and power over the forces of nature, over sickness, illness, and now death. And so this is the final of those seven signs. It's his greatest and final miracle in the Gospel of John. And where he is at this time, right before this, he goes back to the place where John was baptizing, which is another place called Bethany, but Bethany across the Jordan. And it's in a region called Perea, and it's about 15 miles east of where Bethany is. So at that time, maybe a, a, if you were huffing and puffing it, like a day's journey walk. I mean, there were some hills there as you're getting up to the hill country in Judea, but it was about a day's journey to be able to get to that, that place. So he's not far. He's not far. And so he gets word from this family who he knows, who he loves, this family that has grown up. You know, it says that Lazarus is of Bethany, that he's from Bethany. He's lived there, born there, lived there his whole life. People know him in Jerusalem, this beloved family. A lot of people are coming to Jerusalem to help to mourn the loss of Lazarus. And he knows this family. He says that he loves them, that they are beloved to him. 
Um, we have this explanation that Mary is, um, you know, already has this reputation of being the one who has poured the oil on Jesus' feet, even though that hasn't happened yet. That actually happens in John chapter 12, one chapter from now. Uh, so it's an interesting kind of time lapse there. But it's clear that if you're reading this, even though that hasn't happened yet in John's gospel, it's clear that everyone in the early church knew who these people were. The second you say Mary, even though it's a hugely common name at this time, uh, if you say Mary, the one who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and, and, uh, and wiped, you know, wiped her with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair, immediately you would have known, the early church would have known who you were talking about. So these were very important and uh, sought after or influential people in the early church. And so they're very close to Jesus. Um, I find it interesting, as I pointed out before, that uh, in the Gospel of John, it's written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. That phrase is not used until after this. And this is the place where Jesus particularly is noted as someone who he loves. Uh, John particularly is never pointed out as the person who Jesus loves. And so there is some scholarship that says the disciple whom Jesus loves is actually Lazarus. Um, and that's because it's never used before this. And now that he's risen from the dead, of course, you would follow Jesus even more devotedly and be there for everything after that. But that's just an interesting kind of, you know, nerd note. But anyways... So imagine this, you know, you know Jesus, you know he's the Messiah, you have this closeness to him, you're disciples, you're well known in the community, and this, this thing happens, this awful thing happens, and you reach out to Jesus, you know he's not far away, he was just in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Dedication, you know he's just 15 miles away, a, a, a kind of heavy day's journey, and you know that he has the power to heal your brother. Like imagine like your child or your loved one, like your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parents, someone who's very, very close to you, is like on a surgeon's table needing a heart transplant. And you have a heart, but the leading cardiologist who can do this operation is just like a couple hospitals away. And you call out, and you're like, we need you. And you know this person. They're a friend of yours. You know them really well. And you call out, we need your help. We need your help. And two days later, they come. I mean, imagine that angst, that hurt, all of the feelings that are probably being welled up, knowing that Jesus full well can do this. Have you ever had this feeling like you've been praying and praying and praying for Jesus to do something, and you're asking, like, why, God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you, why aren't you revealing to me what you want from me? Why aren't you granting this thing? I keep praying and praying and praying. I keep doing all of these things that I'm asked to do. I'm being obedient. I'm trying to trust in you. Why are you not answering my prayer? And I bet you Martha and Mary were feeling that same thing. And Jesus comes strolling in two days later, and it says Lazarus has been in the tomb now for how many days? Four days. And in the Jewish culture, when someone died, you would wash and anoint their body, and you would bury them that night, that very night. Unless there was some very inordinate circumstance, you would bury them that night. And then you would spend a seven to 30 days mourning, and those first seven days, if you'd come in contact with that body, you were considered unclean. And that just meant you had to ritually purify before you could go, could go back in the temple. And so you're just kind of left to mourn. And so a lot of times you would go visit the tomb because the Jewish people believed that the soul of someone's uh, body remained near their body for three days after death. So what does Jesus do? Does he wait until people might think, oh, Lazarus is kind of almost dead? No, he waits till they're, pretty sh they're absolutely sure he is fully dead. And in that tomb, to the point where there will be a stench, that's their worry. Locked up, sealed away in the tomb, permanently dead. That's when Jesus shows up. Because, as we heard in last week's gospel, it's so that the glory of God could be made known through him. 
When they ask why, who sinned, this blind man or his parents? Jesus says, neither. It's so that the glory of God could be manifest through him. So that you will see this as a sign of who I am and who sent me. And so often when we're praying and praying and praying and asking God for something to happen, we don't see and we don't trust that God knows the bigger picture. He knows the bigger story. He knows how things are going to turn out. And he already has an even greater good in mind. So he comes and they both approach him saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, you could have done something about this. Where were you, Lord, in the midst of our suffering? Have you ever felt that? Ever prayed that prayer? Where were you, God? Where are you in the midst of this? Where were you when this person was dying or when we were suffering, when we were struggling financially? We've been faithful. We've given to the church. We've done all of these things. We've helped in ministry. I prayed every day of my life. Where were you when I needed you? And we have these particular scenes here where Jesus is perturbed. I like that word, where he is perturbed. The word in Greek, enebrimiseto, uh, means that he, uh, when, he is, uh, when he is perturbed, it means he snorted in the spirit. And the, that word literally means like it's used to describe a horse that is grunting in anger. It's the same word in Greek that's used to describe a horse that is grunting in anger. So if you can imagine you like wander into like a stallion's pen and you have no idea, and then all of a sudden, off in the distance, you hear this like visceral grunt of this like giant horse coming to kick you out of their pen. Like that, this like visceral, gut-wrenching sound of emotion is what Jesus lets out. Why? Because he was late? Because he was lazy? Because he could have gotten there on time? No. Because he looks at you and I, and these people here, in our suffering, in our sorrow, in our questioning, God, where were you? And he is angry at the fact that we have to suffer. He is angry at the fact that this separation happened in the first place. That death is a part of our story. That sin is part of human existence. And so when we ask that question, God, where were you? Where were you with us? The answer is, he was on the cross. Suffering for us. Suffering with us. He's there in those moments when you're weeping, weeping with you. When you're angry, he is there angry with you. When you are joyful and laughing, he is laughing with you. When you are afraid... He is sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing and his fear to sacrifice, to suffer for you. Jesus came and experienced the breadth of all human emotion. Why? So that we would know that we have a God who understands us. We have a God who understands us. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who can relate to us in every way except for temptation, who was tempted in every way but did not sin. That is the God that we worship, not some God that is distant and out there like Zeus or some fake God up in the sky who's totally unconcerned or disconnected from the human experience. We worship a God who came down to walk the lives that we walk, to live the lives that we live, so that when we cry out, he knows better than anyone. In fact, theologians speculate that Jesus actually experienced human emotions even more deeply than we could, because sin dampers our ability to experience reality fully. Jesus was not dampered by sin. So he experienced human emotion even more fully than we could. His anger was even more angry, his righteous anger. His sadness and suffering was even more sad, even more painful. His happiness was even more joyful. His fear was even more terrifying because he was not tainted by sin. He had the full breath of the human experience. And so he weeps for us. He wails for us. He weeps with us. 
And then he goes to the tomb knowing full well what he's already going to do. But this, brothers and sisters, this is not the first miracle of the story. Anyone know what the first miracle of the story is? It's with Martha. Martha, if you remember back in Luke chapter 10, the story of Mary and Martha, we know this story well, where Jesus is there in Bethany, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's in the kitchen doing the dishes. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the washing? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things, but Mary has chosen the better part of it. She's where she's supposed to be. She's at my feet. Notice this is still at play. When Jesus comes, Martha the doer, what does she do? She runs out to go find Jesus. What does Mary do? She waits until she is called. She waits. She trusts. Martha goes out, and this is the first miracle, that she goes and she asks, Lord, if you had been here, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And they have this exchange. Your brother will rise. I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. That was not a commonly held belief, so she's already ahead of the game theologically. But then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And this is the first miracle. It's not a miracle of a resurrection of the body, but it's a resurrection of the soul. Martha finally gets it. She looks at Jesus and she says, yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. One of the most, if not the most, profound statement about the identity of Jesus in all the Gospels. She comes to realize in this moment, in the moment of her deep suffering and darkness, she comes to admit and claim who Jesus is. And then she goes and gets her sister, who has patiently waited because she knows how to be a disciple, as Mary is learning, or as Martha is learning. And she comes and she utters the same thing, but we don't know if it is out of that same distrust. We just know that she's bringing her emotions to the Lord just as Martha did. And even though they make the same statement, they're coming at it from two different positions. And Mary just allows herself to weep with Jesus in front of Jesus at his feet. And what does he do? He weeps with her. That's the posture of a disciple. We bring our lives, our emotions, ourselves to Jesus. We allow him to meet us there. No qualifiers. No like, oh, Lord, you do this. I'll bargain with you. I'll do that. Just bring our emotions to the Lord. And that is when Jesus intervenes and does the second miracle, the miracle that we know well. He goes to the tomb a place that would be unclean. To touch that stone, you risk becoming ritually impure. So he asks them to open this tomb. And there are questions about the stench, how long the body has been there. This is impossible. The soul obviously has left the body. And then once they open it, he cries out in a loud voice. Earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 5, Jesus is prophesying about what's going to happen when the Son of Man comes. And he is the Son of Man. And so he says this in John chapter 5, verse 28. He says, Do not be amazed at this, because the hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and will come out, those who have done good deeds to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked deeds to the resurrection of condemnation. He is promising the things that will happen and claiming that when they do, it will be the Son of Man that does them, God manifesting in the world. So he's claiming this ownership, this divine identity, Hearkening back to these things that he's taught will happen. And these go all the way back to the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, others to reproach and everlasting disgrace. All of these apocalyptic prophecies about when the Messiah will come 
That's where we see this promise of resurrection and new life. But recognize the resurrection is still either to eternal life or to eternal damnation. We sometimes forget that when Lazarus is risen from the dead, he's still going to die again. And he still has to make a choice when he rises from the dead to follow Jesus. That's why in many ways Martha's conversion, the resurrection of her soul, is the greater miracle. Because she is fully committing to follow and trust in Jesus and his identity. Lazarus is given the chance of new life, but what does he do with that? This choice is still up to him. And so we may look at that resurrection and miracle of the flesh as the greater miracle, but it's really the one of the soul, and it's the miracle that we are all being invited into each and every day. Are we responding to that faith that we're being invited into by Jesus? Are we claiming his identity over us that, God, Jesus, I know that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who came into the world. I know that you are the resurrection and the life. I trust in you. Even in the moments when I doubt, when I'm suffering, when I feel like you're gone, I trust that you are the light of the world. And I trust that you can resurrect anything that seems dead and gone. You can bring new life. I can have the faith where I can expect miracles. And they will happen. So when we have that doubt, why aren't you answering my prayer? Why aren't you answering my prayer? Jesus proves that he has the ability to answer it. And he shouts out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I love this part. I just imagine being at a funeral. And I'm in the front row. And someone I, like, someone I love has died. And then all of a sudden, I hear some voice and some commotion in the back. And some guy's like, Larry, get up. And just, you know, like the coffin flies open. Like, that's insane, you know? Like, but that's the type of thing that happened. And that's the type of thing that can still happen today when we have faith and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Remember what I said last week. Jesus says, you, those who follow me will do the things that I do in even greater works than these. Resurrection can still happen if we have the faith to ask and we allow the power of the Holy Spirit to manifest in us in the way that Jesus promises. Notice the difference between Lazarus's, I would call what, Lazarus, what happens to Lazarus a resuscitation. Because a resurrection really is about divine power rising, you know, within Jesus. That he's specifically the one who resurrects. And all of the other times where someone is brought back to life, there's a sequence of events. It starts first with Jairus' daughter, right? Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. She has just died. Then next, it's the, the widow of Nain's son. They're processing with him to the tomb. So a little bit further along in his death, but not that much longer. And then now, four days later, the most dead you can be. Jesus has been working his way up, resuscitation after resuscitation, and finally here, but still not the same as his own powerful resurrection because Lazarus comes out bound. He still needs to be set free. It's a symbol for all of us spiritually too. No matter what Jesus does in our life, we still need to be set free and to respond to that. And can we untie ourselves? No, he's bound. In fact, when someone was buried, their body was coated in myrrh, which is very sticky, so that the bonding clause would literally adhere to your skin. And so by some miracle, they're even able to un untie him and get all these off. But he's still bound. He needs someone else to untie him, just like we do. We need someone else to free us of the things that we struggle with. We need someone else to set us free. We can't do it on our own. And we have to be willing to come out of our tombs, to come out of those dark places where we hide, and bring ourselves into the light, as embarrassing as it may be, Lazarus hopping out, you know, like the, not the picture of dignity, right? You know, you've been dead for four days, you're covered in bandages, you're hopping out. I mean, nothing probably looks more vulnerable than this. And yet, it's through him that it says in verse 45, many came to believe in him.
And so do we have that same faith that God is going to work miracles? And do we expect those miracles to happen in our lives? In those moments where we struggle, where we feel like God is not answering our prayers, do we, do we have faith that he answers and hears every prayer, but it may not be in the way and in the time that we hope or expect? That's really the reflection for you and I, brothers and sisters. And lastly, to ensure that we are always expecting a resurrection of the heart and that we are preparing ourselves for that each and every day when we encounter the Lord in the sacraments, in the word, in our prayer. And we're not expecting this to fall in our lap. We're not expecting him to come when we demand so that he can do what we ask. But instead, we receive whatever it is he wants to do in our lives. So with all that being said, I hope that answers also some of your questions about this passage. Are there other things that stood out to you? Any questions that you have about this particular gospel? Michael. Uh, he refers to himself as the Son of God. Is this like the only place he ever refers to himself as the Son of God? Um, this is a rare place where Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of God. His favorite title to, for himself is the Son of Man. Um, but one of John's favorite titles for Jesus is the Son of God. So John could have transplanted this and, you know, just kind of transliterated it uh, because that's what he really wants to communicate. He, the purpose of the Gospel of John is for him to communicate to the readers that Jesus is not some ordinary man who is given divine powers. He is the literal incarnate Son of God the Father. So he will use that title very frequently. Uh, placing it on Jesus' lips is more rare because, as I said, when Jesus speaks of himself, most commonly says Son of Man because that's a very um, apocalyptic Old Testament image that people would have been very familiar with. Son of God's a little more confusing because it was used in the secular countries as well, and secular rule as well. Like Kaiser, uh, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Uh, the Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, whoever was Caesar at this time, Tiberius Caesar, throughout the, time, the course of Jesus' life, they all had that title, Son of God, or a Son of God, a Son of the Gods, depending on how you translate it. And that was printed on some of their coins. And so to differentiate that, you have other statements like the one who is coming into the world, or the Messiah, or the Son of Man. So that's why I think Jesus rarely uses that title, but John uses it more frequently because now he's trying to separate Jesus from being just some ordinary man? Yeah, great question. Yes, Vicki. Um, I found it interesting, you know, at the beginning it said, you know, Rabbi, the Jews were trying to stone you and you want to go back there. Mm -hmm. And then the Jews are with Mary and Martha. Mm -hmm. And then the Jews are the ones that are like, okay, now I get it. So it was like, are they different groups of Jews? Or yes. Okay. Yeah, so at the time John is writing this, there's a huge division between Christianity and Judaism. Christians are being persecuted. And John, when he writes the phrase, the Jews, in a negative sense, he's referring to the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and the Pharisees. When he's talking about groups of Jewish people, he will use the same phrase, but you can tell by the context that he's not talking about the leadership, the people who are persecuting the Christians. He's just talking about, like, that's who was there. Yeah, that's an interesting point. This happens also in Acts of the Apostles. If, if you know about the journeys of St. Paul, Paul, I believe, is in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And he goes and he gives this great speech about there's only one God. But in Ephesus, there were these artisans who would make these little silver idols to the Roman goddess Artemis. And they come into the city square and they start chanting like for Artemis for two hours. And Paul hears about this and hears that these people are calling for his neck. And he says, we should go. 
Like, let's go. Let's go preach to them again. And everyone is like, no, you need to get out of here. Like, are you nuts? Like, but that's the zealous heart that he has. Like, let's go where the people are. Like, let's go meet them. And Jesus has that same tenacity here. What's interesting here is the character of Thomas, right? Because Thomas is usually known as the doubter. We have that scene at the end of the Gospel of John in John 20 or 21, where all the other 11, uh, the 10 other faithful disciples are there in the upper room waiting for Jesus, or not waiting for Jesus, but they're waiting, and Jesus appears to them, shows them his wounds, but Thomas is not there. And so they go to get him, and he says, I will not believe it unless I can put my fingers in, in, his, in his hands and in his side. And so he's considered the doubter. And I, I often have doubts about that. I don't know if Thomas necessarily was doubting. I see his zealousness here. He being the one ready to lead the charge and say, let's go die with Jesus. Like, I'm all, all or nothing for this guy. So when Jesus dies and he's gone, I think it would be very hard for someone with that personality to be able to open themselves up to think about the fact that maybe Jesus is back. Because then you risk losing him again. So I think Thomas is coming more from a perspective like, unless I see him, I can't let myself believe that he's back. Because if I lose him again, it would hurt too much. You know? So whether or not he doubted, you know, we don't know. The, the word that's used here as an alternate name for Thomas, Didymus, means twin. And uh, some scholars don't think that that means that Thomas had a twin, but he had this kind of twin nature. That sometimes he had this very faithful, zealous personality, and sometimes he was very doubtful. And it could have been a nickname for him. Kind of almost this like bipolar response to Jesus. You never knew what you were going to get from Thomas in a given situation. And that in itself is also a model for us. We are all Didymus at times. Sometimes it's very easy for us to follow Jesus, usually when things are comfortable and going well in our lives, right? And sometimes when things are murkier and difficult, it's harder. It's harder to show up and do the work and have faith when we're not seeing the fruitfulness of that faith at work in our lives immediately. Other thoughts, questions? Faith. Mm-hmm. Martha comes running up to him. They, they chat. And then mm-hmm. Martha goes off, tells Mary, and Mary goes back to where Jesus was. Yes. Like, like why did Jesus stop? Like, wasn't he heading there? Like, like he was mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to hang out here now? Like, yeah. why didn't he keep moving? The interesting thing about Jesus is that we look at these large swatches of miracles and these big grand things that Jesus did and how he affected everyone in the world and all of civilization and died for all of our sins. And yet Jesus is still always concerned with these one-on-one moments. And so I think he waited because Mary hadn't come to him yet. You know, he's waiting for this one-on-one moment, this encounter with her, just like he waits for all of us. You know, Jesus, I always say, is a perfect gentleman. He's not going to go where he's not invited. He's not going to barge into your life and say, guess what? I'm going to prove to you I'm real whether you like it or not. And your life's going to be great from now on. Like, no, you have to have the faith to go to him and to give him permission to enter your life. Give him permission to be Lord over your life. Give him permission to save you. That's why it's still a choice. We still have to participate. It's not just this thing that falls in our lap again. So I think... It's a juxtaposition between these huge, miraculous things that Jesus did to save all of us, but also the sensitivity Jesus has to encounter the one. And we're invited to mirror that in our own life, right? To make sure that we are responding to these large things in society, in our family, in our friendships, representing Jesus well out in the world and the community, but also paying attention to when Jesus brings the one to us. Like, having that prayer, that sensitivity to, like, Jesus, who are you seeking to cross my path with today? that I just need to encounter and be present to? Who's the one person? Help me to notice 
Because we often want to think on terms of like, we live in a culture that thinks in terms of like thousands of followers, right? These big swatches of people. How can I influence, affect, and communicate with as many people as possible? And we're not so much about the one. You know, can you imagine if a business, like it would be the stupidest business model ever to say, okay, we're going to focus all of our efforts to market to Jeff and only Jeff, and we only want Jeff to buy our products, and we don't care about anyone else. So we're going to put billions of dollars into advertising and marketing just so Jeff will buy one of our products. That would make no sense. And yet that's what Jesus does for us. He has that attention and willingness to focus all of his energy, all of his love on each of us individually as if there were only one of us. And we treat people often as throwaway items. Oh, I don't need that person, or I can walk past that person, I can ignore that person. And our faith in Jesus really calls us to have that same sensitivity to the one and the miracles that can happen in those one-on-one -on -one moments. Yeah, Margo. Um, do you have any thoughts about or is there anything that's stated anywhere about how Lazarus felt when he, you know, I mean, he obviously was bad, he could have had a fabulous experience there, and then he back. To living. Is there yeah. So I don't know anything theologically, but when I read this, I thought of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if anyone's ever seen that show. And Buffy comes back to life, and everyone thought they were rescuing her because she dove into this like hellmouth fire and they thought she went to some bad place, but it turns out that she went to this be beautiful place, she was at peace. And then when she's brought back by her friends through this ritual, she's like miserable. And I thought about that. I was like, I wonder if Lazarus was like, guys, come on. I was like, so great. Like, what the heck, you know? But I think because it's Jesus who does it, it's not some nefarious scheme that's put off by his sisters. I think that he's preserved in such a way from knowing, like, now there's a deeper purpose to my life. So there, there's nothing that I recall reading about Lazarus reporting or testifying what that was like. We do know that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha continued to reside in this area until the persecutions happened, uh, particularly where Paul was persecuting Christians. And after the death of St. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 or 8, they flee to Cyprus uh, because people are specifically coming after Lazarus. Because they're like, hey, remember that guy that everyone said Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we need to kill that by killing him. And so they're looking for him because of this miracle. So this miracle didn't necessarily make his life better. And so as a result of that, he has to flee with his sisters to Cyprus. But when Paul and Barnabas visit him there later on uh, one of their missionary journeys, they appoint him as the first bishop of one of the cities in Cyprus. And that's where him and his sisters die. So he becomes a bishop uh, on the island of Cyprus. So that's what ended up happening to him. So there may be some lore and testimony about what he shared or an early sermon of Lazarus somewhere that I'm unaware of, which would be really cool to find. So I'll let you know if I do come across anything. But nothing that I have heard so far or read so far. Yes? That's kind of like how when Saul goes to the witch of Endor mm -hmm. to bring back Samuel, one of the first things Samuel says is, why have you disturbed me? Yes. He's already dead. Yes. So there's like this irritation of like... Why am I here? Yes. Like, I mean, obviously, he's not bodily raised; it's his ghost mm -hmm. speaking. But um, I always thought of that as like a very like telling thing. I mean, it wasn't like heaven in the sense that saints go to now. Mm -hmm. It's like this different area. But even that was like better than whatever this is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we wonder. And we have that story of, you know, the other uh, parable of Lazarus and the rich man, you know, where Lazarus dies, this poor man named Lazarus, and he's in the bosom of Abraham with Abraham himself. And this, this rich man sees him from across the chasm on the bad place of the Hebrew afterlife. And he says, go, go to my brothers and tell them. Uh, and they basically say, your brothers have the, the laws and Moses, the laws of Moses. And if they won't listen to those, they're not going to listen, even if someone comes back from the dead. And so it's clear from Scripture and from these different instances that this is a very unique thing to happen for a very particular purpose. And again, so that the glory of God would manifest. Not so that Lazarus' life would be easy and great and abundant after this. He still died. He was persecuted even more so as a result of this. And so there must have been something about his faithfulness in life before this moment where Jesus knew he had the ability to undertake this very heavy responsibility. You know, this wasn't all glamorous and glorious. We think back to the apostles and we revere them and we take their names at confirmation. I don't think they were thinking like, yeah, people are really going to be talking big about us later on. You know, I think they were really, you know, balancing this, wanting to preach this good news of Jesus Christ and make these miracles manifest in the world and be faithful to that, but also just fleeing for their lives constantly. Yeah, Rick. When you, when you talk about these what are you talking about? Yes, so at the 9 a.m. Mass on the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Sundays of Lent, uh, we have these things called the scrutinies. These Gospels are particularly read on these 3rd, 4th, and 5th Sundays to accompany those rites. And the rites are for those going through RCIA, those becoming Catholic, specifically, specifically those who are unbaptized. So on these three Sundays of Lent, this Sunday will be the last one, they stand before the community at that Mass and they are prayed over, and powerful prayers of exorcism and healing are prayed over them to prepare them for their baptism. And so we have these powerful prayers, or these powerful gospel stories of healing and encounter to accompany those uh, particular Sundays where those rites happen. So even though we only see them at one mass out of the weekend, uh, it's meant to be a model for all of us to be invited into that healing and that experience of a renewal of our baptismal vows and the sacramental identity we have at Easter. Greg, you had a question? Yeah. It's interesting about Martha and her, her conversation with Jesus. Goes on. She says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, even, but she kind of goes with the party line. Mm -hmm. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God will give, God will give you, right? Mm -hmm. No problem. But then down below, it's almost like she's doubtful that you know, Jesus has to bring her back online again. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. He's been dead for four days. Mm -hmm. So just a minute ago, you know, she's saying the party line, oh, you're the son of God, you know, blah, 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 all that. And I said, hey, buddy, he's been dead. He's thinking now. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. You better be careful about what you're going to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so bring it back online again. You know? Yeah. Um, Monsignor John, you, you reminded me of this. Monsignor John was really passionate about, you know, we have these, these hours for adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel, where the Blessed Sacrament is exposed in a monstrance for you to adore the Lord. And so we would do different things where we would have exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. But Monsignor John was really passionate about, I want you to do some of these things and not expose the Blessed Sacrament, but allow the Blessed Sacrament to remain in the tabernacle because I want people to understand that Jesus is not bound by a box that he is still just as present there in that place for people to come and pray and encounter him. And as you were sharing that, I was thinking that Martha, she had this box that she put Jesus' abilities in, in her mind. Okay, Jesus, I know you're the son of God, but still in the back of my mind, I think I know what that means. I think I know what you're capable of. 
And later on, still, she's still learning into this reality of who Jesus is. And the reality for all of us is that we, we don't even know. We don't even have the capacity to understand what Jesus is truly capable of in our lives. And the more and more we try and intellectually get it, the less and less close we will be. The closest we can get is just further surrender and trust. Allowing ourselves to say, I don't need to know, and I will never be able to know everything you are capable of doing in my life, but I will give you permission to do it. And I will let go of the things that I'm trying to control. I will let go of my assumptions about you. I will let go of my desire to control when and how you intervene in my life. And I just trust, Lord, that you will do it. And so I just ask that you come and you heal. You come and that you be with me. And you allow me to come to you, as you always do, in my emotions. When I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I'm afraid, when I'm joyful. And let you be with me in those places. But the moment we box Jesus in and we think, oh, finally I've got it. Finally I have a theological understanding of God that makes sense. Oh, and we got to be careful. So that's what St. Augustine says, and it's quoted in the Catechism, that if you can understand it, it's not God. If you can understand it, it's not God. Isaiah 55, you know, my thoughts are above your thoughts, my ways are above your ways. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that, that we are not meant to be in the driver's seat in this life. We are not the main character in the story. We are not the center of attention. We are all ancillary background characters in this great work of salvation where Jesus is in the spotlight. And the more and more we can put him back in the spotlight in our own lives and step aside and allow him to ring true and reign and his glory to be made manifest through the works that happen in our lives, the more we can surrender to that and play our role in the background joyfully, then the more blessed we will be and the more blessed the world will be. So let's seek to do that this week. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this community and the gift of your word. As always, we just ask, Lord, that this word would permeate our minds and our hearts this week, and that you would allow us to draw out new reflections, new messages for each one of us as we continue to prayerfully reflect on these words and anticipate hearing them again this Sunday. Most of all, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to be open to your healing and to your will at work in our lives. Help us to surrender our desire to control how you work, when you work, how you answer our prayers, and just trust that you will. But let us, Lord, receive whatever you have in store and invite you always to bless us in the ways that you will. Compel us to come to you in our emotions, to come to you with our prayers, but trust that you hear every prayer and you answer every prayer, but you do it in ways that are above our ways. You do it in ways we may not expect or understand and at a timeline that is different than our own, and so help us to trust and let go, Lord, for you are good and you are always working for our greatest good. Thank you, Lord, for doing that, and help us to trust more in that each and every day. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Once again.